0: Welcome to the Sinica Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to keep on top of all the latest news on China with our email newsletter, our app, and our website. And while you're there, check out the growing stable of podcasts in the Sinica Network, too. SubChina offers uncensored reporting from and about China, and you can read about everything from media policy to the Me Too movement, from the trade war to China's ongoing draconian repression of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. So we're sure you'll agree that it is a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from the Seneca South Studio in downtown Durham, North Carolina. Joining me from one state over is Jeremy Goldcorn, who's been called the Michael Avenatti of the China Watching World. <laughs> How are things down in Goldcorn Holla?
1: Yeah, they're they're really great.
2: Well, I, I'm heading really your great. way tomorrow. Yeah, I,
1: I should be. I, as I told you, I've been sued. I won my case, but I, I feel like I'm a, a real American now. So congratulations on yeah.
0: I mean, your very first lawsuit. That's that's as American as your first, you know, Fourth of July fireworks or something like that. I
1: still haven't eaten apple pie, but I've been sued. Huh. <laughs>
0: we'll have to rectify that. Uh, So in the middle of the afternoon on May twelfth, two 2008, a little more than 10 years ago, I was uh, at home in my uh, ninth-floor swanky digs at Gemdale on Beijing's east side when I uh, suddenly thought I was experiencing really severe vertigo. Uh, A couple of seconds later, I realized that it wasn't vertigo at all. Uh, My apartment really was swaying, and the towers across from me were visibly swaying, too. Um, I was on Twitter at my desktop, and I immediately typed, anyone else feel that quake just now in Beijing? And I looked at the you know U.S. Geological Survey website and saw nothing at all about any seismic activity in the area. Uh, but on Twitter, I saw people posting from Shanghai and, and from Shenzhen all talking about having felt a, a big quake. I'm thinking, what the hell? Um, and then on USGS, I saw that there had been a really big quake to the northwest of Chengdu uh, centered on a county I'd never really heard of called Wunchuan. And uh, from the fact that it was felt pretty much all over the country, it was obviously a huge quake uh, with many, many aftershocks, both literal and figurative. Jeremy, where were you? You were in Beijing too, right, when the quake happened?
1: Yeah, I was uh, just uh, a little west of you in the Qijia diplomatic compound. At the time, I was running my old website, Dunway, uh, out of my home uh, office, my apartment there. And we felt... The quake. I didn't actually notice it, but uh, some of my colleagues did. Um, And uh, then we noticed people uh, very shortly afterwards uh, rushing and being evacuated out of the office buildings on Chang'an Boulevard opposite uh, the apartment. And I, in fact, I I just looked up my uh, posting because I I, I was sitting there working on on the website, and at 2:47 p.m. that day. I posted a 7.8 magnitude earthquake occur- occurred in eastern Sichuan province at 2.28 p.m. earlier today, according to the U- U- U.S. Uh, uh, government's earthquake website. But the initial reports, like you had come from Twitter. Uh, at the time, Twitter was still open in China, and I had a lot of right. Chinese geek friends who were using it. And all over the country, there was, you know, Dijin, Dijin. People were actually using a hashtag, <laughs> Dijin. Um So it was a very memorable day. And they had hashtags in
0: 2008, huh? Wow. Yeah, it sure was. Uh, Today we are actually going to be talking all about the quake and specifically what the response to the earthquake tells us about the relationship between the party and Chinese society, about how the party leadership sought to manage coverage of the quake, how it sought to use the quake to bolster legitimacy, And how it ran into really significant challenges that undermined those efforts to a a large extent. So joining us to discuss this vitally important topic is Christian Sirace, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Colorado College. Christian is author of an excellent book called Shaken Authority, China's Communist Party and the 2008 Sichuan Earthquake. Christian Sirace, welcome to Seneca.
2: Oh, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for having me on the show.
1: Christian, thanks very much for joining us. I'm actually going to immediately issue a, a, a correction to what I just said. I just looked at that web post. Uh, people weren't using a hashtag, Dijin. They were just writing Dijin. Uh, just want to get that piece <laughs> of internet history straight. But <laughs> sorry, sorry about that, Christian. Things. Thank you for joining us. Let us set the stage first and talk about the region of Sichuan where the quake hit. Uh, can you give us a sense for what Wenchuan County and environs, uh, what were they like in 2008?
2: Wenchuan County, actually uh, Yingxiao Township, which was the epicenter of the quake, is a mountainous region. It's very remote, which also exacerbated the difficulties in responding to the quake. And uh, for the most part, the area is populated by a mix of Han Chinese, also Chang, and also Tibetans. So one of the interesting things that we'll talk about later that happens after the quake is really the transformation of the area from a rural one into, into an urban one. But uh, to get started, that's where we're, we are.
0: Huh? Uh, and tell us maybe about the quake itself, about the broader context of what was happening in China at the time of the quake. It, it was China's Olympic year, of course, and there had been the riots in Lhasa and in other Tibetan areas uh, back in March. And there was, you know, all the controversy over the torch relay uh, that went through uh, the parts of, of Tibet and Sichuan where there were, you know, a large Tibetan population. So. What, what about the quake itself? Uh, can you tell us right. what, what, what uh, the, the, the circumstances were?
2: Right. Well, great question. And um, the quake couldn't have come at a worse time for the Communist Party. So as you mentioned, there were the riots in Lhasa. Also, a few months before that, there was a train crash in Shandong province. There were snowstorms that crippled uh, transportation infrastructure, and about over 100 people died. And then on the 12th, you have this massive earthquake that was 7.9 magnitude. And now when we think about the scale of the earthquake, over 85,000 people died and 5 million people were estimated to be left homeless by the quake. So 5 million people is more than the entire population of Los Angeles municipality. So it's just a tremendous scale that's kind of hard to wrap your head around and imagine. Yeah. I'll say. So after the quake, you have this initial praise for the state's immediate response for deploying troops. Also, there is an openness to media coverage, and we can talk about all of that in detail if you want a bit later. But right after that, within a few days, you start to have stories and images circulating of grieving parents who are demanding answers about why their children died when the schools collapsed. So the attention starts to shift away from the official response to the topic of what came to be known as a Dofu Dreg construction or tofu Jia Gongchang. You have these parents uh, demanding answers for why their children died when the schools collapsed. And then right around the corner, um, you have the Beijing Olympics. And we know how important the Beijing Olympics was to the Communist Party as this kind of Um, you know, China's re-entry onto the global stage and projection of power and economic development and state capacity and all of these things. And there was a genuine fear that the earthquake might disrupt the celebration and the importance of the Olympics. So all of these things are clustering around the event of the earthquake, which very much put Communist Party leadership on edge. I can totally see why. Initially, we heard a lot of talk about the upsurge
1: in uh, volunteering, and uh, at the time, I was generally impressed with the initial response from Chinese uh, citizens, and not just from society, but also from the leadership. There, there, seemed to be a generally positive framing in the first few weeks, both in terms of the fact that ordinary people were stepping up to try and help, that the leadership was being open about it, and that they were acting. I'm not sure. If that was just me or, you know, Kaiser, you and Christian also had that sense. Um, But yeah, I definitely got that sense.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah,
1: of course. Uh, Yeah. I mean, if you did, you know, was there a real basis for that positive impression that many of us got? And then what brought about the change when it suddenly seemed like there was all this nasty stuff coming out? What were the inflection points?
0: Yeah, I mean that that's I mean, let me, let me say something quick. I I actually had friends who packed jeeps up with tents and and water and and emergency rations and stuff, and just drove off to Chengdu. Uh, and there's definitely that sense in the reporting, and even in a lot of the foreign reporting. I think initially there was some focus on there were a lot. I remember seeing a lot of stories about uh, volunteerism and, and and whatnot.
2: Yeah, I think both of you are absolutely right. Uh immediately after the earthquake, um people were rushing to the earthquake zone, people were sending donations, NGOs were popping up all over the place. Uh the, com- you know, the, the the Communist Party was also initially praised for allowing uh journalistic coverage. I know you had uh, Maria Repnikova on the show and she talks about that in her book. Um, And so actually, the initial coverage and uh, academic articles about the earthquake all focus on this aspect. And there was a ton of speculation that what we were witnessing was the quote-unquote seeds of civil society taking root in China. And, you know, if they were seeds, well, they certainly were not given room to grow. And I think Jeremy asks a really nice question about what was the inflection point. And in my book, I make the case that this activity was limited to a short window of the rescue period in which lives were at stake and time was of the essence. And then after this short window of rescue, the reconstruction phase begins. And then the picture changes entirely and top-down control is steadily reasserted. Why is this important? I think there are uh, two main reasons. Is that the party felt challenges coming from two different directions. The first, as I mentioned before, were the protests of grieving parents. It was pretty obvious that if schools collapsed due to shoddy construction material, then somebody was at fault and had to be held responsible. But the second challenge is actually a lot more subtle, and it's the challenge of volunteers, the emergence of people organizing themselves, which I argue actually threatens the party's monopoly over benevolence, charity, as well as control over social organizations, and that was also a threat that needed to be contained.
0: It's oh, very interesting. Uh, talk a little bit about that shoddy construction. I think they they were using this this phrase "dofu dregs" construction, right? Uh, first of Correct. all, was there you know what, what was it just greedy contractors who were diluting the concrete and not using enough rebar, or what what was at, at the heart of this construction issue.
2: Basically, what you just said, the use of substandard building materials to cut corners in order to make a profit. And then that involves the state because in order to use those materials, you need to have lax regulation and you have deals and bribes and people turning a blind eye. Mm, Yeah. Um, and and also just an interesting note, um, I'm kind of a nerd for facts like this. The term "dofu dreg construction actually was coined by Zhu Rongji when a dam collapsed in 1998, and he used it as a reprimand to the Communist Party that we can't be constructing our national infrastructure with these dofu dregs. Interesting. And I'm not sure if any any of you have made dofu, but uh, the process leaves behind these kinds of like bits and pieces that are uh, fairly useless. And so this visualization is that this is what was going in to the to the schools that then collapsed, this kind of shoddy construction material. Not only useless, but
1: soft and dirty. Yeah,
2: yeah. E- exactly.
0: So Christian, disasters are an opportunity for the party to cultivate a you know, sense of gratitude that you, you talked about, uh, and to deepen the bonds that are really kind of the basis for the legitimacy, for the party's legitimacy. Uh, you make the argument that gratitude is a kind of social currency in China. Uh, is this, first of all, is this particularly Chinese um, or is this sort of bond between ruler and ruled pretty basic to, to to how states operate, whoever they may be? And then, you know, maybe you can explain this whole uh, sort of trade in the currency of gratitude in, Ch- in China.
2: I don't think it's particularly Chinese at all. I actually think that more often than not, what's interesting is the way the Communist Party will take certain things and then actually theorize them and be unabashed and explicit about them. So I think that what we can see is actually operative universally, but the Communist Party actually conceptualizes it and then puts it into practice in a specific way. So what you have after the earthquake actually is um, about two years after the quake, when the reconstruction is already in full swing, the communist party launched uh, what they called a gratitude education campaign or gan and jiao yu hodong oh my god and yeah it's it's it, it's just so brutally explicit in many ways <laughs> um and this was this was in schools and workplaces and basically what i argue is that it was it was a response to the fact that the party was upset that they weren't seeing The particular kinds of reactions that they were expecting. So instead, they went out to teach people, especially children, how to respond properly and display their gratitude and thanks to the party and also the entire country for helping. But this also has a really dark side to it. Officials would talk about gratitude education as a way of, quote unquote, removing psychological obstacles, returning overly emotional people to a reasonable and rational state. So there is also a kind of control element here. And I want to make two points about the uh, gratitude education. First, it's entirely vertical relationship between the giver and the receiver. And second, how does one ever pay back this gift? How can you amortize the party's infinite love and kindness? <laughs> well, you can't. It's a lifelong debt paid back in the form of submission and political quiescence. So it's not really surprising to me that Gan'en and gratitude, which appeared in the aftermath of the earthquake, now becomes actually much more frequently used in the Xi era and was used during the uh, the commemoration of the 10th anniversary of the earthquake. If, if you don't mind me going off topic slightly, I, do you mind? No, go for it. Go for it. <laughs> okay, you know, I just want to to, to mention. So I'm I'm, I'm writing a, a a paper actually on gratitude with a with a colleague of mine. And so doing research for this paper, I came across an article written from the head of the women's federation in some township in Xinjiang. And the article is about gratitude. And so it starts off enumerating all of the positive policies and treatment the party provides. And then here's the kicker, and I just want to read this quote. I repeatedly ask myself, why do some people not treasure or endorse such wonderful days? Could it be that our ethnic group is ungrateful and ethnicity without a grateful heart? End quote. So, I mean, this is an incredible sentence. And when you think about the dynamics in the sentence, it's basically saying... I give you utopia and you reject it, so what the hell is wrong with you? You know, <laughs> you're, you're, you're almost made defective in relationship to the gift. And then we've also, as I'm sure both of you have heard, uh, the reports about Xinjiang re-education centers. Of course, yeah. Um, where, where they've been replacing uh, praise for Allah and Islam with gratitude to Xi Jinping and gratitude to China, as the main source of authority and meaning for their lives. So I think, I think in the Xinjiang example, gratitude education here is on steroids as a kind of dark form of coercion and policing. But it cuts through... A lot of party language as this kind of vertical relationship of dependence.
1: Christian, uh, th- that's um, th- th- this is mm. one strategy, I guess you could call it. Um, wh- mm. How would you describe other strategies? I mean, what what are the, what is the party's playbook in the aftermath mm. of a natural disaster?
2: Mm. Yeah, that's a that's a, that's a great question. I mean, ultimately, the party's playbook um, after the Sichuan earthquake was to make sure, you know, not talking about the rescue period, where the goals are very clearly, how many lives can we save? We have to prevent contagious diseases from spreading, you know, all sorts of complicated things like that we wouldn't really think of that go into rescue, like disinfecting the grounds and removal of corpses and making sure people have potable drinking water. That's the rescue period goals. Then when you move into the reconstruction, the party was very clear in what they wanted to produce, and they actually used some terms that help us think about it. They said, we want to create a quayue fajan, a great leap or stride of development. We want to actually bring this rural, remote region 30 years of development in under two years of a kind of frenetic activity of reconstruction. And in fact, the party even refers to this in Renmin Robau article and People's Daily Articles as the production of a miracle or a qi So they're making sets of concrete promises that people's living standards will be improved, that every household will in under two years have an actual place to live, that every family will have at least one member with a non-agricultural employment, so a form of salary, And that the infrastructures and the provisions of the state will just entirely modernize this area. So those were the kind of promises... On the table that political economic development could be achieved by this compressed intensive mobilization of the uh, of the state apparatus in every level of society. So, you know, they did they did actually some wonderful things, to be honest. You know, the Duikou the, Zhiyuan or the partner assistance relationship was a strategy where 18 provinces or uh, municipalities like Beijing and Shanghai were paired with counties in the disaster zone. And for three years, these uh, giving provinces or municipalities were expected to donate at least 1% of their GDP, as well as send technical support, as well as send labor power, as well as transfer industries, and basically help develop the disaster zone. And also, another really interesting metaphor that they used was they referred to this as blood transfusion, mm. which will then, they said, which will later then become a form of Zhaoxue or blood generation. So, you're going to take the blood from the affluent coastal provinces, inject it into the disaster zone, and then make this flourishing region. So, the party's main idea was that we are going to show that we care for the people and we can raise their living standards after a crisis of such unimaginable proportions. This was the wager.
0: And not just raising their living standards, but actually urbanizing them. Um, I think in the fourth chapter of your book it was, you talk about this rural-urban integration and how the quake was supposed to serve to accelerate uh, the party's goals of pushing people out of impoverished areas, uh, uh, rural areas, into cities and towns, or creating townships out of these these villages basically uh can you talk about that goal uh what this goal was all about and efforts to use you know the devastation to as you said you know to to, you know sort of um, leapfrog toward you know rapid urbanization and then maybe talk about some of the problems that they've run into in trying to do
2: this right that's a that's a fantastic question because I also think that this problem extends way beyond the case of the post-disaster reconstruction, because this is a model that's being implemented nationwide in terms of pursuing a strategy of building smaller level cities and doing what they call or rural, rural urban integration. So actually, this has been a goal or ambition that's been around at least a decade before the earthquake. And actually, a lot of the local cadres I talked to and interviewed referred to the earthquake as a kind of blessing in disguise because it helped them accomplish their goal of demolishing rural housing, which then allowed them to move the farmers or the peasantry into apartment buildings and townships. Mm. So the overall goal here of rural urban integration is to extend the form of the city into the countryside, which then will also prevent massive migration to areas like Beijing, Shanghai, Pearl River Delta, all of which have recently also um, put population caps and are undergoing kind of urban gentrification, but that's a whole nother story. So after the earthquake, if you take Dujiangyan, for example, over 7.7 million square meters of urban space was built in the reconstruction. 50% of their entire rural population were moved into cities. Wow. So this is a massive expansion of urban space. And actually, for several months during my research, I lived in one of these apartment buildings that was built to house former farmers who are now moved into these apartments. So, so what is the problem with this? I, I call it in my book a form of utopian urbanization because all of this is actually perfect on paper. And there's a lot of different mechanisms of planning that go into it. And the party actually refers to it um, after the earthquake as integrating what they call three concentrations or san gejijong. So the first idea is once you move the peasantry off the land, you can concentrate the land to open it up for larger scale intensive agriculture. Which is more efficient and
0: recognizes economies of scale. Exactly,
2: more efficient economies of scale. The second is through the help of the partner assistance, You import factories from the uh, coastal regions into the earthquake zone. So then you have, um, then you have basically industrial clusters uh, and concentrations of industry, which is supposed to create jobs. Then the third, right. the third concentration is basically bodies. It's moving the peasantry into the apartments in urban townships and cities. So they give up their land, then they're supposed to get a job uh, in a factory where they can work and afford to live in their modern apartments. And also one of the big upshots of this is that this contributes to the party's macroeconomic goal of increasing domestic demand and weaning off its dependence on exports. So the, the ultimate idea is that you have these former farmers who are now living in cities who are earning money and are buying things with that money. The problem is that the jobs seldom materialized. Right, of course not. And if the jobs did materialize... These people in their 40s, 50s, or 60s didn't have any skills that qualified them to be hired. So there's so you actually have in the earthquake zone people sitting around playing mahjong, complaining, even more dependent on the party for support than they were before the earthquake, and also just kind of falling through the cracks of the transition. I mean, one of the uh, one of the most frequent complaints I heard in the earthquake zone um, in these apartments was. We we don't have a place to to raise pigs. We can't keep pigs in the apartment, <laughs> and you know that, that that may sound kind of bizarre to, to to some of our listeners, right? Um, but but a pig is what a pig is a is a lifeline uh, in case of famine, you know. So so these kinds of concerns didn't really map on to this vision of urbanization, and so then the party launches another kind of campaign, which they called urban citizen construction, or xin shi min jian shi, which is basically what are the kinds of people that we want to have.
1: Is it different, do you think, than in the aftermath of a man-made disaster like the massive chemical fire yeah. in Tianjin or the Wenzhou high-speed rail accident?
2: Yeah, that that's a, that's a great question. And I, I think one of the playbook, uh, one of the, the, the aspects of the playbook or what the party learns uh, from, from these disasters is that they always try to control the forms of remembrance. So actually, if you look at the Tianjin explosion, one thing that I find to be just so remarkable is that they're filling the crater and building an echo park on top of the site. Now, again, I've just read this. I haven't gone there and seen it myself. Um, But the idea is, I think, very similar to the aftermath of the Wenchuan earthquake, which is don't spend too much time thinking about the past and just focus on the future and the kind of insistence on on that. And so, yeah, and I mean, your point is absolutely excellent that every disaster actually becomes an opportunity to push through things that were on the books for a while but never quite were able to be implemented apart from these emergency conditions. I mean, you know, I think Naomi Klein talks about this idea, right, as disaster kind of capitalism in general, that when disasters happen, it allows for goals that couldn't be implemented before to be pursued with vigor in the aftermath.
0: Right. Right. Well, we must not forget comrades that capitalism is the original disaster.
2: <laughs> Sorry. You know, in
0: China so uh, earning this gratitude for the party, it, it depends ultimately it's on the shoulders of the individual cadre, right? So uh, how is he expected to behave and and how well did our our notionally selfless and sacrificing cadre really really do in terms of living up to uh, the expectations after the Wenchuan quake?
2: Right. Well, that's that's a That's a great question. And actually, so part of the claim that I make in my book is that we really need to also ask ourselves some basic questions such as, what actually is a Communist Party cadre? And is it comparable to, you know, the kinds of models we usually have in mind, like, uh, you know, Max Weber described, uh, a bureaucrat is a person who goes to their job and then goes home and goes back to their private life after they do their job right? Well, in China, I actually argue that this isn't the case, that uh, a, a Communist Party cadre is actually a kind of lifelong commitment and submission to the party. So this is a lot different than Weber's model of the bureaucrat. So after the party, this term that I think people haven't thought about for a long time, pops back up. And the term is or party spirit, which originally was Partinost in Russian.
0: Partinost.
2: <laughs> Partinost, right. And, and this term, so actually in, in, in 1924, when Stalin gives a eulogy for Lenin, he says, comrades, we communists are people of a special mold. We are made of special stuff. And the stuff he's re- referring to is this party spirit. So to give you a concrete example, in the aftermath of the earthquake... Uh, there are lots of aftershocks, landslides. uh Communist Party cadres often lost family members. Their houses collapsed. But there was an organizational demand to immediately go into action and throw yourself into work without any regard for your own loved ones or personal safety. And actually, the way it was talked about at the time was that it's totally understandable to be afraid or to want to spend time with your loved ones after a disaster, but that's renxing, or human nature. Dangxing means we expect more from a cadre. Right. We expect you to give more and to sacrifice yourself more. And so to a- answer your question, you know... Cadras were genuinely working day and night um, without resting, uh, under lots of, of of stress and pressure. So don't forget one one thing I stress in the book was that most local cadres were also disaster it, were also disaster survivors, right, right? And then had to throw themselves into in, into work. Well, after a while, you started to actually uh, cadras started showing signs of emotional. Exhaustion, PTSD, nervous breakdowns. There are actually two or three high-profile cases of cadre suicides in the earthquake zone that that caught the central government's uh, attention. Mm. And so, I mean, in, in all honesty, if you think about what it's like being a kind of a grassroots cadre in China under ordinary circumstances, when you're dealing with the pressure from above, uh, with your superiors, and the pressure from below from the people. That's already a really stressful situation. And now compound it with the idea of responding in this emergency mobilization.
0: Of course, all of this makes makes it all the more galling, this, this lack of proper gratitude for what the party has done. Anyway, uh, at one level, Christian, this book is really kind of a case study to illustrate a broader point that you're trying to make, which is about the importance of understanding party speak. Um, so maybe for our listeners, you can make the case for why we shouldn't just dismiss that often you know, pretty turgid and obtuse language that the party uses. I mean that stuff gets filtered out. I mean I think a lot of people would think uh, by most Chinese people and we're told that they're mostly just pragmatic and they want to get on with their lives. So why should we listen to the words that the party says if the people don't or or do they?
2: Thank you so much for asking that question, Kaiser, because you know, one of the key claims of my book is that to dismiss everything that the Communist Party says as this kind of empty propaganda actually makes what is going on in China much harder to understand. And if we pay close attention and kind of train a sensitivity to listening to this party speak, it actually can tell us quite a bit about what's going on. And there are reasons why we don't. Um, and, and, and one of them is that a lot of the ways in which language is used in China is completely misunderstood and doesn't map on to our own approach, especially uh, in academia. So I want to give you one example that I think is really important. What do you guys think if I say the word uh, propaganda? What, what immediately comes to mind?
0: You know, big posters written on the sides of walls or uh, large sort of slogans and yeah, that right, sort of thing.
2: Right, right. So... And in in the U.S. context, we always use propaganda pejoratively as something that's bad and not truthful and 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 you know false in some way. But in the Chinese context, the idea of chuan or propaganda, yeah, yeah it's traditionally
0: yeah, neutral. Yeah, it's it's neutral.
2: traditionally meant a kind of moral guidance or or disseminating moral exemplars and standards of behavior. So party speak is not necessarily about an accurate reflection of reality, but also about presenting a model of how it should be ideally. Now, again, don't get me wrong. I'm not I'm not defending or even criticizing it. I'm just trying to unpack what it actually is and what it's doing. And I think that when most people sit back and say, oh, this is propaganda and it's false. And so I'm going to turn off and stop listening. Um, really misses the m- really misses the mark because that's actually not what it's supposed to be doing. So a lot of academics, mm. especially political scientists, are you know to me stuck in a hopelessly naive positivistic approach to language. If it's not referential, then it doesn't matter. But here. And you have to take my word on it. The Communist Party is light years ahead in thinking about the relationship between language and power. I can give you, I can give you a few examples. So I'm, I'm sure both of you and all of the listeners pretty much know that, you know, Mao was very, very anti Confucius. He was not a huge fan of the old society or of Confucian thinking. One of the sure. things that Mao actually praised about Confucius was his theory of language and the and what he called the Doctrine of Rectification of Names or, or Zhengming. And so this may sound really obscure, but it's actually extraordinarily fascinating. Um, in in, in, in a, some passage from the Analects, when a disciple asks Confucius, what would be the first thing you do if you were to put in charge of governing the country? Confucius responds, rectify the names. I mean, that's an incredible statement. The first task of government is to tidy up language. That seems a little bizarre, right? (laughs) But what the idea was is that when you have the names, um, that creates an order for society, right? And then if we think, and, and Mao praised this idea and actually said we need to have a revolutionary order of names. We need to put our own imprint on how people talk and on the kinds of words they use to understand their lives. And the one thing that stands out so much from the Mao era is that. They got people talking. I think Jeremy Barmay actually refers to this in a cute way as a red lagaria of a kind of excess at words. But if you go, if you just think about the campaigns and the history of speaking bitterness, of self-criticism sessions, of writing big character posters, the Mao error could be defined as getting people to, to to speak, obviously in the terms set by the party. So now if you ask, okay, that's well and good, but does it still matter today? Well, Xi Jinping has made a very emphatic point about talking about what he calls yu chen or discursive rights, and has urged the media and people to tell China stories well. And he's not simply saying, oh, we need to tell nice stories. He's talking about who is authorized to tell the kinds of stories that will shape people's understandings and lives. I mean, he's talking about political power. So, It's not just the barrel of the gun, but the barrel of the gun plus the power of the word. So before we can, you know, I'd love to talk to you about how this plays out in the earthquake with the distinction between a natural disaster and a man-made catastrophe. But I just want to share with you one quote that I find to be so amazing. Uh, Li Shule, who is one of uh, Xi Jinping's advisors, said in an academic article, Language never only reflects reality, it molds reality. Language is not a political instrument, it is politics itself. End quote. So I mean, who actually needs Foucault and post-structuralism when you have guys like this in the Communist Party, sure, right? Sure. Uh, so, so that's, that's what, So to answer your question, my point is that we need to think about the state and the party also as a source of meanings. And not just simply an apparatus of control and and extraction. So so words words matter a lot, and we can, and they mattered a lot in the aftermath of the earthquake.
1: Christian, can you talk about the work of some of the more prominent critics or dissidents, if you prefer, who rose to prominence with the Sichuan earthquake? I'm thinking of Tan Zoren and, uh, of course, of the artist Ai Weiwei.
2: But you're absolutely right that Ai Weiwei's falling out with the government is specifically related to his activism and art after the earthquake. So yeah, I'd be happy to talk about it. So actually, at, at the same time, Tanzoran and Ai Weiwei, who uh, didn't know each other, but they were simultaneously pursuing investigations into the schools that collapsed and into uh, collecting biographical information of the names of the children that, uh, that died. And so Tan Ren was arrested on subversion of state power. And actually in, in 2009, in August at his trial, was where uh, Ai Weiwei made a really great documentary film about his uh, going to be a witness for Tan Zolren's trial and then basically getting intercepted and brutally beaten in his hotel room and never ending up able to attend Tenzo Ren's trial as a witness. I think that documentary is called Lauma Tihua, which is the name for uh, the the delicacy of pig's feet in, in, in Sichuan. But I, I I think, I forget the name of the English title. Um, disrupting the Peace? That's not right. But anyway, uh, uh, we piece. can... <laughs> Disturbing the Peace. That's right. Thanks. So, right. So, so what, what's really, um, what's interesting is that Tan Zolren and Ai Weiwei by paying attention to the singular individual lives of the children who died and giving them a name and collecting or not giving them a name, but preserving their name and information runs entirely counter to the party's, uh, you know, national mourning and kind of sublimation of all of the deaths into this form of strength and party glory and and gratitude and all of this. So on his blog uh, or on Twitter, I forget exactly where, but um, Ai Weiwei wrote at the time, you know, about the children. Who are they? What pain did they endure while alive? What grief do they provoke now that they are dead? These are really, really powerful questions. And a lot of what Ai Weiwei's art was at the time it was to mourn. The, the deaths of the children in a way that the Communist Party very much did not like and did not tolerate. You know, for instance, the famous uh, installation where he took 9,000 children's backpacks and spelled out a sentence from a grieving mother. She lived happily in this world for seven years. Really, really, really powerful piece. Wow, Obviously man. not one that yeah, but I think that was in Berlin, where that was because it could not obviously be in China. So so, so, what was happening after the earthquake uh, with Ai Weiwei, with Tan Zouren, with grieving parents who don't have the same obvious uh, influence as these other figures, is that people were calling into question the party's story that it was a natural disaster, that it was a tianzai. And they were insisting that, hey this is a ren ho or a man-made catastrophe and that distinction is extraordinarily important and also comes with a lot of historical baggage in china most importantly after the great leap forward you know uh, liu Xiaoqi referred to the to the famine uh, in the great leap forward as 30% a natural disaster and 70% man-made catastrophe and then Mao uh later reversed the verdict and 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 said that it was too dark, and there was no light in it, which is a you know uh very distressing statement <laughs> um so 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 anyway these these terms have a has a have a historical baggage, and after the earthquake, you have people starting to ask questions like, "Why did my children die?" Why did the schools collapse? Who is responsible? And so I actually read several internal documents at the time that were sent to party officials in the local area insisting you need to do thought work. You need to do propaganda work. You need to go out there and make sure everyone understands this is a natural disaster and not a man-made catastrophe. And so to come back what we talked about earlier with gratitude, think about it. If it's a natural disaster, then the party obviously comes to the rescue and is the savior. If it's a man-made catastrophe, well, then, you know, things are starting to not look so well. Right. And, you know, to to, to go to what Kaiser said when I asked what comes to mind with propaganda about the uh, – and, and, and Kaiser's response were the big, you know, red banners with the white lettering, with the white characters, with party slogans – you know, when I was in the earthquake zone, I think my friends thought it was some kind of weird fetish. But I would always say, oh, let's stop the car. I want to take a picture of these slogans. And some of them are really incredible. Like, uh, to give you two quick examples, one one banner literally says, Yo Ching. Uh, which i loosely translate as a, as an earthquake doesn't care but the party does and an, an, another is even funnier which is referencing a a, a old story about mao which is chu shui wa kao gong or and you know i apologize to the chinese listeners you can tell that my tones are terrible but you know well, we do what we can, right? Um, but, but, but that quote means, when drinking water, remember the well digger, we rely on the Communist Party for happiness. So, so what's going on here is, is the party is just stressing over and over again. Your new life depends on us. And without us, you know, what do you have? You have the terrifying conditions of nature. Or you have social chaos. Right. You have Luan
0: let's jump forward 10 years. I mean China recently observed the, the 10th anniversary of the 2008 quake. Uh, can you talk about what was significant mm-hmm. about the observance and how it relates to these theories you've been talking about about language and ideology?
2: Right. Well, the one thing that honestly jumped out at me, um, I wasn't surprised by it, I was disheartened by it, but not surprised by it, was that the quake was officially commemorated and described as a Gan en Ru or a day of gratitude. And so at all of these celebrations and commemorations, you have speeches from local officials talking about their gratitude to other areas in China for the help. You have the party secretary of Wenchuan County talking about how gratitude needs to be transformed into a morality and motivation for all future conduct. You have kids being brought on stage talking about their experiences. And, you know, some really heart wrenching stuff. You have two kids who come on stage at this official event, and they're talking about the way their teacher used his body and sacrificed his life to prevent the rubble from falling on them. And now how their whole lives are dedicated to his sacrifice and also to to the party's kindness. So you have all of these kinds of heart-wrenching narratives and poems and images and uh, images of she, images of children smiling. And one thing that actually stands out to me is, okay, great, but where are the, isn't this doubly erasing the lives of the children that died? You know, so there we can draw a really significant Contrast with what Ai Weiwei was doing, which was remembering almost you know each individual life, and here those lives are just you know gone and and buried literally and figuratively. Um, And the interesting thing was that there was actually some pushback, uh, and a few critical articles appeared on Weibo and circulated on Weixin that referred to this uh, calling the tenth anniversary of the earthquake. A day of gratitude as absolutely shameless, and um, you know, I wrote down one quote uh, which I think is interesting. Uh, one of these articles said, "We had to step over people's fresh blood to be here. This should be a black day. How could you, you know?" And then it goes on to say, like, "How could you manipulate it in that way?" Wow. And then I, I, I kind of, I kind of love this because I, I think it's, it's a great argumentative strategy. It, it, it pushes then the party's logic to absurdity and asks. So should we be grateful for all devastation and trampling and for flooding, earthquakes and tsunamis and viral devastation? So, of course, these essays were censored. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so so, so at, least, at least there was some pushback on what was going on in the control of the discourse there.
1: One of the low points of the George W. Bush presidency, and there were quite a few, was the handling of Hurricane Katrina, which hit Louisiana and Texas and most famously wreaked havoc in New Orleans. I'm sure many of us still have those images seared into memory. And of course, more recently, there was the Trump administration's rather terrible handling of Hurricane Maria uh, in Puerto Rico. So what can we learn when we compare American responses to Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane Maria with China's response to the Sichuan earthquake?
2: Yeah, that I, I completely agree with you, Jeremy. Those images, especially from Katrina, are just vividly um, engraved in my mind. Um, so I'm actually not, you know, there are people who are, you know, disaster specialists and, um And again, like I mentioned earlier, I mainly look at the earthquake as a way of trying to explain these larger dynamics of Chinese politics. But one thing that I can tell you that I find absolutely so fascinating is that after the Sichuan earthquake, every anniversary for about two to three years, the People's Daily ran a column by their collective writing team. Talking about the earthquake and the response in a comparative perspective, and guess what china 's one party socialist system does a lot better in caring for the people, mobilizing resources, and you know providing for society than the u s did after Katrina and also the uh, Japan did after the kobe earthquake. so these were the examples that they that they give, and with with no shortage of schadenfreude. They point out, you know, hey, in under two years, we've moved over five million people into new homes and stabilized this entirely remote and mountainous area. And now it's like however long it was after that, you know, like five or six or seven years after Katrina, and there are still people living in trailers and there are still homeless. So, what does that say about the U.S.'s political system? So, if you want to know what my response to that is, is that the Communist Party is very well, is, is not wrong in their criticism about the U.S. and I think what is, what is, what is, um, fundamentally wrong and dismal about our political system, but they're not right at the same time in how they instrumentalize and manipulate that to celebrate their own political system but i think that the 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 ultimate the question then is what can be done to help to genuinely help reconstructing people's lives in the aftermath of a disaster and where China does excel in terms of the state capacity, its ability to mobilize resources, its ability to cut through red tape and get things done, when we're kind of sitting here paralyzed, at the same time, what they provide to people, you have to look really closely and ask yourself, is it genuinely what people need to improve their lives? Or is it about improving the, the image of the Communist Party? Right. And that's where the whole, you know, after the earthquake, all of these complaints I heard in the earthquake zone that the reconstruction was, you know, or face engineering or right, xing jui right. formalism. So those are the questions to ask in the in the in, in, in the in the particular uh, Chinese context. And um, if I may, I just want to point out one thing that I think is really, really important that um, I was surprised that I was genuinely surprised to find is that we usually point to contentious politics and people protesting in China as you know evidence of how bad and negligent and repressive the party is. But one thing from the earthquake zone that was really um, remarkable to me was how high people's expectations were for the party to actually come in and to help them and to prove their lives. And so the, their, their disappointment... And their anger was over the feeling of these kinds of promises being let down and betrayed and not fulfilled, right? So, so just the presence or absence of, you know, people angry doesn't really tell us much. We always have to look at the context in which it's happening. Look
0: at the expectations that they had set. And, right, right.
2: right, And, you know, it, it's, it's hard to do that because the U.S. context is so fundamentally state phobic. The state is bad. State, you know, and and, in China, it's not like that. Actually, there was a great joke on WeChat, uh, that going around three or four years after the anniversary. Uh, and and the joke, uh, I think really captures this kind of texture of state society relations, which is, uh, you know, many people after uh, after the earthquake viewed the government as a lover. Uh, why don't you pay attention to me? Who needs you to pay attention to me? You owe me an explanation. I don't need to hear your explanation. They're all lies and bullshit. But, uh, you know, uh, I find the joke to give a much more nuanced view of the entanglement of the Communist Party and of local society than a kind of... As jokes often do. Right. Than, than a kind of way of just looking at the state as um, this kind of monstrous Leviathan. It's, it's not.
0: Well, Christian, thank you very much. Um, The book, again, is called Shaken Authority, China's Communist Party, and the 2008 Sichuan Earthquake. Uh, Christian Serrati, again, he's Assistant Professor of Political Science at Colorado College. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, It's been really, really edifying for me. Uh, so before we get to recommendations, I want to give a shout-out to Jason McRonald, who's been a uh, an intern with me all summer and has contributed a lot to this particular podcast. So thanks, Jason. And, of course, I want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SupChina. Sign up for our free daily email newsletter or, better yet, join our SupChina Access Program. And get early ad-free versions of this podcast, uh, get weekly roundup newsletters, uh, get discounts on our conferences and some other events, and uh, get access to our Slack channel where you can harangue our editorial team and uh, and talk to guests that we bring on for special chat sessions. And don't forget to leave us a positive review over on the iTunes store. So thanks, thanks very much. Uh, now on to recommendations to, to wind up. Jeremy, uh, what do you have for
1: us this week? I would like to recommend a graphic novel version of the epic of uh, Gilgamesh, which is the, uh, I think on the cover, the uh, epic uh, of European culture, you know, a hero's quest and a father and son team of uh, comic book artists and uh, translator um, have uh, put together this uh, rather amazing uh, comic version of Gilgamesh and makes it really fun to read. <laughs> interesting, sort of psychedelic
0: Gilgamesh. Okay, you have to send me. A, just take a picture and, and, and text me. I want to want to check it out. Uh, that's that's an interesting recommendation. Cool. Uh, Christian, what do you have for us?
2: All right. So also a non-China related book. Uh, but right now I'm reading a book called Other Minds: The Octopus, the Sea, and the Deep Origins of Consciousness by Peter Godfrey-Smith who is a philosopher who has spent a lot of time in the deep with octopi and cuttlefish and what have you. And uh, the entire book is about this kind of independent line and evolution of um, consciousness and subjective awareness that is entirely alien from humans. And uh, it's just fascinating, and there are lots of really great, playful anecdotes about octopi.
0: Yeah. Cool. I'll, I'll enjoy some taco sushi tonight and read that.
2: <laughs> oh, don't eat octopi. Okay. okay. <laughs>
0: cuttlefish, too, huh? I mean, I, I do eat those. They're so delicious, they really though. Are. My God. So uh, a, a third non-China, well, tangentially China-related, I want to recommend the Ken Burns Vietnam documentary, which I've finally gotten around to watching. Uh, it aired on PBS, of course, but uh, it's available on Netflix now. Uh, It generated quite a bit of controversy when it first came out, but I think on balance it's quite excellent. Uh, The production of the thing is just masterful. Um, I've been watching it with my 14-year-old daughter uh, who watched it with the the Chinese subtitles on, which are really good. Uh, It was actually pretty interesting to me to see how much Chinese syntax there actually is in Vietnamese. It's quite recognizable. Um, They're very separate languages. I I looked it up. it, It turns out it's not even... You know, from the same language family, but there was so much syntactic borrowing over over time that that it's it's very evident when you when you listen. Anyway, the, the documentary is just great. It's it's really worth seeing. So, Christian, once again, thanks so much for for making the time and for sharing your insights about your your very excellent book. And uh, we look forward to having you back on again.
2: Thank you, Christian. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Kaiser and Jeremy. For the invitation
0: The Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn and, and edited by me drop us an email at cynica at SubChina.com follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at SubChina News and make sure to check out our other podcasts the Caixin Cineca Business Brief the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China and New Voices on Women in China more shows coming soon thank you for listening and we will see you next week take care hey.